Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back once more to Signals to Danger, the podcast that spends half of its time trying to scare you into not traveling by train and then the other half explaining why you probably still should. My name is Dan Fox, the producer of Signals to Danger, and also a full-time employee of a UK train operating company in my day-to-day life. I just wanted to take a moment to quickly thank those of you who've been coming out to support the podcast either on Patreon or by purchasing some of our branded bits and bobs from Creator Spring. If you want to find out more on either of those things, you're going to find those links over on Twitter and Facebook or at signalstodanger.com. With that swift intro put to bed, it's time for us to start this week's episode as we roll the credits and travel back to 1961 to talk about the accident at Singleton Bank. The majority of the accidents that we've discussed on this podcast, in fact potentially all of them, have had one thing in common, certainly not the traction or rather the type of trains involved, which has invariably changed considering the march of progress and the time elapsed since some of them took place. And not the causes, we've seen human error, mechanical failure, we've even seen the sobering results of too much to drink. Each accident has, as we learned last time, its own unique set of circumstances. No, for this comparison, we're going to talk about a similarity shared by every accident we've covered. They've all taken place during journeys between stations that are still there today. Maybe not the actual blocks of stone, or even the same track alignments, but all of them took place on passenger floors that are still available. The East Coast Main Line between Edinburgh and Newcastle, the scenic stations on the settled Carlisle. Each of these still exists, and even more modern trains complete them in a much safer manner than those did in the instances which this podcast covers. No, this time we're going to be talking about a passenger journey which no longer exists, one that you couldn't make by rail anymore. Why does it no longer exist, I hear you ask? Two words will answer that question, and there might be two you've heard before. Beaching Axe. Or rather, beaching cuts might be the more polite phrase, but... Don't forget the capital B on beaching, for this is a name and not something you want to do when you wish to run the ship aground, although there's probably some subtext in there somewhere. Dr Richard Beaching was, for a short but notable period, the chairman of the British Railways Board. In his limited tenure of only four or five years, 
between sort of 1961, 65-ish, he sat at the helm of one of the largest steps backwards in the nation's railway story. Beeching had been handed a mission from the then Prime Minister Harold Macmillan that the industry must be of a size and pattern suited to modern conditions and prospects. In particular, the railway system must be modelled to meet current needs, and the modernisation plan must be shaped to adapt, well, must be adapted to this new shape, and with the premise that railways should be run as a profitable business. So what was the resulting master plan to ensure that the railway was both profitable and sustainable? Beeching set out to study traffic flows and takings, identifying those parts of the network that were contributing, and those that were taking away from the collective purse. His recommendations were published in what became an infamous report, The Reshaping of Britain's Railways. While I'm certainly not going to get into the intricacies of this report and its recommendations, suffice to say that it was somewhat controversial. In a world where we're finally looking at building new railways again, admittedly in a very expensive and time-consuming manner, and where we can reasonably acknowledge that the greatest impact that the railway can have on the climate crisis will come from modal shift, actually getting people out of cars and onto the rails, it can be quite difficult to see what Beeching proposed. Out of the 18,000 miles of railway that existed at the time, Beeching recommended that 6,000 should be closed entirely, and that of the remaining lines, some should only be kept open for freight. 6,000 miles of a low-rolling resistance, environmentally sustainable transport network spanning the length and breadth of the nation, recommended to be closed. The proposal inevitably focused on rural areas, and marks a key point for me personally where the rail network began to be run more as a business and less as a key piece of national infrastructure that should be run by the government for the nation. The proposed closure wouldn't only see the track closed off. Clearly stations were going to be impacted as well. 2,363 were set to close in fact, including 435 that were already under threat. Both those on lines that were pegged to close and others that on lines were remaining open, but the stations themselves were going to propose to be shut. Holiday and coastal resorts were severely affected by these closures. The report recommended closing almost all services along the coast of North Devon, Cornwall, East Anglia, aside from Norwich up to Great Yarmouth. All of the services on the Isle of Wight were recommended for closure, as well as the branch lines in the Lake District. One of the most significant closures was the Great Central Main Line from London Marlborough to Leicester and Sheffield. In any case, you can tell that the closures which resulted from this report, which are generally colloquially known as the Beeching Acts, are a sore point for me. And indeed for many, could we maintain those networks, or at least a portion of them, rail travel in the UK could be far more accessible and we could be reaping the environmental and societal benefits today. But I will not wax lyrical any longer because I need to gently steer myself back to the subject matter of this podcast. One such coastal resort, which saw the end of its direct passenger services during this period, was the town of Fleetwood. If you haven't heard of Fleetwood, you probably will have heard of its larger neighbour along the Fylde coastline, Blackpool. Blackpool's famous for being a seaside resort, well served by the railways, bringing in those good old Victorians to the coast for their rest and relaxation, ball dancing and... Comically stereotypically striped one-piece bathing suits with knotted handkerchiefs on their heads. But it's not the only place that people want to visit. Fleetwood was also an attraction on the Falth Coast which drew people in its own right. The town had seen various peaks over its history, expanding greatly in the first half of the 20th century with the growth of the fishing industry and passenger ferries to the Isle of Man became a deep-sea fishing port and indeed one of the three most important fishing ports in the country at one point. For many, many years, passengers could travel to and from the station at Fleetwood by train, but following the recommendations of the Beeching Report, the terminus station in the town itself was closed in 1966, and the dock station, which also served the town, was finally closed in 1970, cutting it off from direct rail services. And that, That is the reason why the journey that was made on the day of this accident can no longer be undertaken by rail. But I suppose it's a little bit irrelevant in the context of this story that we're telling today because this story, this tale, takes place on the 16th of July 1961, five whole years before Fleetwood Station closed. Which is lucky, because today's episode is going to revolve very heavily around one train in particular, the 0850 Express Passenger Train 
from the town of Colm to the coast at Fleetwood. And with that rambling yet brief history lesson out of the way, let's start telling today's story, and indeed, what happened to the 0850. In the morning on the 16th of July 1961, a driver by the name of Shaw eased his train out of the platform at Colne Station to the east of Blackburn in Lancashire. He'd been charged with the control of this train as far as the coast and was perfectly qualified for the job. The train was six carriages long and fairly modern for the time, in an era where steam was still present and indeed maybe even prevalent upon the UK network. This train was a rather newfangled contraption indeed. From the mid-50s onwards, a number of companies had started to build diesel multiple units for British Rail to operate the local stopping services up and down the network. And this was a pretty good move in my estimation. The replacement of smaller tank engines requiring long firing up processes with many of the intricacies steam engines bring to the table, drawing carriages behind them. Well, the replacement of them with multiple units with just a diesel engine slung underneath them turned on almost as easily as a bus would have been a game-changer for the operation of these local services. One such company building these vehicles was Craven's Railway Carriage and Wagon Building Company, a rolling stock provider from Sheffield. While they had a fine historical tradition of building traditional carriages, including some fairly impressive sleepers for for foreign railways, two of their most prevalent products at the start of the 60s were the Class 105 and the Class 113 multiple units. Both types were two carriages long, and each vehicle in their train had their own diesel engine. In fact, the only real differences between the two types were the size of the engines. The 105s were built from 56 onwards, and the 113s were built upon the same body shell design four years later. This meant that while the 105s were provided with 150 brake horsepower engines, the 113 benefited from an uprated design delivering 238. One of the best features of multiple units is the ability to couple them together to make longer services, and that's exactly what the 0850 Fleetwood train was comprised of. These carriages were led by a 105 with two 113s coupled up behind, meaning there was capacity for plenty of passengers and a grand total of 1500 horsepower split between the six vehicles. According to one of the sources I've been able to find, and just the one, They've told me that the 0850 Fleetwood wasn't just a normal train as well. It was an excursion train advertised to take passengers through to Fleetwood and return around 8pm, collecting people from several stations along the way. With a promise of the seaside behind the journey, it's not a surprise that the six carriages of the train had filled up nicely. And at the point where it passed through Preston and set out into the Fowl proper, it had around 350 passengers on board, And from this point, the line would take them to the west before a sweeping turn to the north would take it on through another station which no longer exists, Singleton. this point in our story we must take a step away from the passenger express and take a look at another train in the area at the time. A far cry from the modern diesel multiple units carrying happy beachgoers, this was a utilitarian beast on its way to undertake some good old-fashioned hard work. A class 8 freight loco, which sported two leading wheels and eight driving wheels, along with a six-wheel tender, 
was the traction on this train, much more akin to the image of railways in the earlier half of the last century. Well, certainly based on the fact it was a steam locomotive and was giving off all the sights and sounds that we've come to associate with that. Behind this Class 8 were 39 open high-sided wagons with a 20-ton brake van at each end, partially loaded up with soil from ballast cleaning that was being undertaken. All of this together meant that we were looking at an overall train weight of around 575 tonnes. And where could we find this 575 tonnes of train? Close to the village of Wheaton, near Singleton Bank, where it was supporting engineering works. The line in this location, just where the tracks turned north towards Singleton Station then upwards to Portland, the Fylde and Fleetwood, was a fairly up-to-date and indeed up-to-spec section of track. Not a wilting single-track section, but doubled in respect of the traffic the burgeoning resorts and ports had brought to the region. The report into the incident describes the locale as follows. From Wheaton to Singleton Bank signal box, a distance of just under one mile, the down line is on a continuous right-handed curve of gradually increasing sharpness. At first, the radius is 140 chains, then 100 to within 200 yards, and 70 chains thereafter. From Singleton Bank to Singleton Station, the line is straight. It is in a cutting from Wheaton up to the point where the curvature changes from 100 to 70 chains, and then is on a bank for most of the way to Singleton Station. So, very technical speak, but if you can picture that, it is a a right-hand bend in a cutting that gently gets sharper, and up at the point where it gets to its very sharpest point, it comes out of the cutting and then starts onto an embankment. And it's that location that the Colne Express found itself arriving at around half past ten in the morning on the 16th. After it left Preston, it continued on westbound as far as Kirkham to that point where the line curved to the north towards Wheaton. And as the train traversed this curve, under clear signals, no cause for concern, Driver Shaw was controlling his train adequately. He was well within the permitted speed, a little below it in fact, alert and attentive in his duties. The train continued around the corner as the radius tightened and the cutting that the line was running within obstructed a little bit of the vision of what was ahead. But like I've just said, Shaw was under clear signals. No need for concern. Until the track began to straighten out in front of the 200-ton express, carrying 350 passengers. At a speed of 60 miles an hour, Shaw was suddenly confronted with a sight he hadn't been expecting. Every ton of the ballast train sat ahead of him on the line that he was travelling on. Shaw put in the brakes on his train, but with the speed he was travelling and the distance he had to work with, the collision was inevitable. Shaw's application of the brakes was crucial in reducing the train's speed from 60 to 45 miles an hour, but that was the point they ran out of space. The leading coach of the express struck and completely destroyed the rear brake van of the ballast train, but in the process of this collision the cab and leading first class compartment were also heavily damaged. The train then proceeded to override the six ballast wagons at the rear of the train, ripping its bogies free and skating along the top of them. After this point, the leading vehicle veered off to the left, likely due to the curving of the track that was still taking place. And had they still been in the cutting, this might have stopped the vehicle from going too far adrift. But just prior to the collision was the point that the line had transitioned into a 15-foot high embankment. The leading carriage with its heavily impacted front end, plunged down the embankment and came to rest parallel to the track in the field below. And for the first part of its deviation, the coupling to the second vehicle remained intact, so it dragged the second coach, or at least its leading end, down the slope with it. The coupling then broke and the second slid along, rotating, with its trailing end lifting up above the tracks. The second vehicle eventually came to rest at nearly right angles to the track with its leading end against the side of the first coach and its rear end projecting high above the ballast train. While the first coupling failed, every other one on the train performed admirably, and in fact better than we've seen on trains introduced decades later in other accidents. The third vehicle also rode up onto the wreckage of the ballast train, but the leading end of it ended up suspended in the air still connected to the trailing end of the second. And it's this incredible scene which is depicted on the episode artwork for this podcast. 
Beyond this, the leading end of the fourth coach also rode up onto the other wreckage, but the remaining vehicles came to rest in line and on the rails. This collision, which had snuck up on the express out of nowhere, had actually claimed the life of Driver Shaw, and six passengers on board his train also succumbed to injuries sustained in the accident. In addition, 116 passengers sustained lesser injuries and were conveyed to local hospitals, 18 of which ended up being detained overnight. And the guard of the ballast train, who had been stood in the rear van, saw that approaching train and jumped clear, but he was slightly injured and, well, somewhat unsurprisingly, was suffering from shock. This was not the end of the journey expected by those on the Colne Express that day, and unfortunately for driver Shaw and six of his passengers, this collision spelled, well, not only the end of their journey, but the end of their lives as well. the accident prompt steps were taken to protect both lines from staff working on both trains as well as gangers who'd been working on the line at the time of the accident they ensured that control was informed and called for assistance the lancashire county ambulance service was advised at half past 10 and the first ambulance reached the site six minutes later within half an hour nine more ambulances had arrived and the last casualty was removed to hospital at 11:15, only one hour after the accident a swift response by all accounts. The fire service and police were equally prompt to respond, with the first machine from St anne on seas Fire Brigade arriving at 10.38, and in addition, fire tenders and crash units, including mobile cranes, also came from the RAF station at Wheaton and gave valuable assistance. While a swift response from the emergency services is something we've come to expect, we're maybe not as used to the speed with which the railway got back up and running in this case. The railway breakdown trains from Preston and Newton Heath arrived at 12.15 and 1.40 respectively, and by 9.40 both lines were available for normal working, after a closure of just over 11 hours. 11 hours from crash to traffic is something we haven't even come close to of late, and arguably it's probably a little too quick by the standards of investigation, and maybe even a touch of respect for the fact that lives had been lost. But this was 60 years ago and times were different. In any case, following the accident, Brigadier C.A. Langley, a familiar name from reports at this time, was assigned the task of investigating the matters which had taken place at Singleton Bank. And there were some perfectly valid questions to ask. If Shaw was seeing clear signals on the approach to Singleton, were they meant to be there? Why was a ballast train stood blocking the line? What was going on? Were there rules that should have prevented this from taking place? With those initial thoughts in mind, let's dive in to the investigation. have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify plus they accept most insurance plans to get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In order for us to understand what the signals were telling Shaw on the day, the first step is going to be understanding the type of signaling that was in place. This section of the Preston to Fleetwood line was operating on the standard absolute block of double line working. This is something we've covered many times before, and it's not something that was exceptional in its design. It's a line that signalled from line side signal boxes, each responsible for its own section, and each manned by a signal that would pass trains up and down the line from box to box. It was equipped with standard semaphore signals, and in order to increase line capacity, Home signals, intermediate block home signals, were provided between each signal box. The line was not equipped with the automated warning system, which, well, we know there were some sections of the line that weren't equipped with that until long after, and we're not talking a massive amount of time here since the nationwide rollout was really starting to be called for. So, with a normally signalled section of absolute block railway, what the devil was going on which led to this accident? Why weren't we just in a business-as-usual situation? On the day of the accident, engineering work was in progress on the upline between Singleton Station and Wheaton. Similar work had been carried out the previous Sunday and it was intended to complete that work on the next Sunday. And the work was actually some pretty comprehensive track maintenance, some ballast cleaning, re-sleepering, re-ballasting and tamping to settle everything out again. For this purpose, a ballast cleaning machine was used on the upline in the vicinity of Singleton Bank, and a tamping machine also on the upline worked from Wheaton towards Singleton Bank. Along with all these track machines and the gangers, two ballast trains were in use. One of these for sleepers was working with the permanent waste staff near Wheaton, and the other, the one involved in this accident, was used for the removal of spoil and was used in conjunction with the ballast cleaner. So for this purpose, it stood on the downline and spoil from the cleaner's conveyor belt was tipped into those high-sided wagons, which we know all didn't survive the day. The engineering work started at midnight, and for four and a half hours both lines were closed and work carried on exactly as can be expected. Both lines were blocked and the only trains moving on either line were the engineering trains and other equipment. But all of this changed at half past four in the morning. There was still some work to do this morning, but there was also a requirement to start ferrying some traffic through the section to and from Poulton and Fleetwood. At 4.34, the downline was handed over by the engineers and single-line working was introduced by the blokes in charge of the worksite. This meant that while there was still some work being overtaken, undertaken, there was an option to have trains running up and down the downline towards Fleetwood in between the works and while the upline was still blocked off. And this was working relatively well. Relatively well. Between 5am and quarter past 8 in the morning, 10 trains had passed up and down the downline. Many of these movements were light locos, so that's a locomotive alone without a train. And the spoil train also passed from Wheaton to Singleton and back again. But there were some normal trains going through the section as well. Two passenger expresses passed northbound between 5 and 6. And two southbound passenger trains also passed through the area successfully. So single line working was established and was working. At 7.30, one of the inspectors responsible for the work, a chap by the name of Redmond, began to make arrangements to start clearing the various engineering trains and machines away from the section to get them into a position where they could hand the railway back properly. At half past eight, with this in mind, the sleeper ballast train departed Wheaton, heading north towards Poulton where it could be out of sight and out of mind, and most importantly, well out of the way. This went without incident, and by 8.38 the sleeper train was passing through Singleton and was entered into the train register as it schlepped up to Poulton. The ballast train was next to go, and as well as just moving out the way, an assistant inspector by the name of Bush decided that they would use this train to remove the single line working on the section. So before he left Wheaton, he went up to the signal box, removed the form which dictated single line working from the signaller there, a chap by the name of Whiteside. Bush wrote into the train register at the box, single line working withdrawn, normal working resumed at 08.35. Well, it was actually 8.40 when the train departed from Wheaton, but it wasn't quite as simple as the sleeper train's journey. It had actually been agreed that although the train was being used to remove the single line working with Bush as a pilotman to travel on board it, 
to do that task, it would actually be entering the section and sitting there opposite the ballast cleaner until that machine's work was done. All of which means that the spoil train actually sat in the section for over one and a half hours without any additional protection and in an unusual situation where the box in advance still saw single line working, but technically the box in the rear did not. In fact, things were still taking place. At 10am, the assistant inspector Bush contacted Redmond from Singleton Bank signal box to let him know that the cleaning of the ballast was almost complete. Now, this was a box, a signal box in between Singleton station and Wheaton signal boxes. The box wasn't actually in use, but it still had all the communications links. So Bush could go up to the signal box, go up, Namely, it had the bells, the omnibus telephone, and the omnibus telephone was a key part of this investigation. It was a telephone circuit which could be listened to from any of the boxes and stations in the area. Not a point-to-point call, just sort of an open line that everyone could dial into. Redmond, he was at the box at Wheaton, along with the signal at their white side. Armed with this information, Redmond used the telephone to tell Bush to remove the single line paperwork from Signalton station box as soon as he got there, and to dispose of the remaining engineering vehicles up to Bolton. This is the point we're going to introduce you to a young, relatively new signaller by the name of Harrison. He was manning the box at Singleton station on the morning. This is also about the point that some confusion started to abound. Shortly after 10am, Bush spoke to Harrison on the telephone about the removal of the engines on the upline, and also told him that he was returning with the ballast train on the downline. Harrison misunderstood this message, and thought that the ballast train was coming on the upline. On the conclusion of this conversation between Bush and Harrison, the events took place that led directly to the accident. There was, however, a direct conflict of evidence between two of the signalmen involved, Whiteside at Wheaton and Harrison at Singleton. Whiteside's story was this. He overheard the conversation between Bush and Harrison. He thought that Bush told Harrison that the ballast cleaning was returning on the upline and that the spoil train was leaving immediately on the downline. After this, Whiteside took over a conversation and discussed it with Harrison, the movement of a light engine at Singleton Station. After a few minutes, by which time he thought that the ballast train must have arrived at Singleton Station, Whiteside asked Harrison whether he was clear on the downline, to which Harrison replied that the line was clear, and promptly returned his block instrument to normal. This is what enabled Whiteside to signal any trains further. Almost immediately afterwards, Whiteside says he was offered and accepted the Colne Express. But before he offered it to Singleton, he asked Harrison again whether the line was clear. Having been reassured a second time about this, he states that he offered the Express and it was accepted. And that was all she wrote. Key to remember that this is only one version of events, for Harrison challenged back with an alternative version. He said that following his conversation with Mr. Bus, Whiteside offered him the Corn Express while his block instrument was still showing train online for the ballast train. Harrison didn't accept it, and he spoke to Whiteside, who told him that the ballast train was coming on the up line. Consequently, without any further confirmation, Harrison turned his block instrument to normal and accepted the express. He frankly admitted that he should not have accepted the telephone conversation in place of a cancelling signal, and during cross-examination it became clear that he had become thoroughly confused about the various telephone messages he'd either received or overheard. Harrison's story was confirmed to a decent extent by Terras and Craven, two of the men who were in the Signalton signal box at that time. Both of them heard the block bells ring and saw Harrison go to the telephone, after which point the signals were cleared, and one of them was told that the ballast train was coming down on the wrong line, which would have been the up and now the down where it actually stood. As a result of these conversations, the Colne Express was allowed to enter the Wheaton-Singleton station section under clear signals, while the ballast train was still standing on the down line. To make matters worse, the train would already have been on the move, and possibly even at Singleton already, but when it had been about to leave a few minutes earlier, some of the gents down there working had noticed that one of the wagon doors had fallen open. The train was stopped, the wagon door closed, but before it could start again, 
the express came around the corner and hit the rear of the ballast train at speed. So with two conflicting statements, what conclusion did the brigadier come to? Well, in his own words, I accept neither signalman's story. I am satisfied that Whiteside did not deliberately tell Harrison that the ballast train was coming on the dip line when he knew it was still on the down line. I believe, however, that he thought that he had forgot that the ballast train had passed and that Harrison had forgotten it. He therefore pressed him to clear the block and accept the express. I am equally certain that Harrison was convinced that there had been a change of plan and that the ballast train had been withdrawn from the downline at Wheaton and transferred to the upline to make way for the express. This young signalman was undoubtedly confused about the movements of the ballast cleaner and the ballast train and I do not think that he understood Inspector Bush's message properly. Hence, when pressed by well, a senior signalman to clear the downline, he took this as confirmation of the change in plan. This is a good example of confirmation bias. And that's when we interpret information in a way that aligns to our expectations. If you think something is true, and then you have maybe an ambiguous message, that can be, you can take that in a way that confirms what you believe to be the case. In any case, Harrison frankly admitted that he committed a grave breach of the regulations when he accepted the ballast train and returned the down block instrument to normal without having seen the train pass his box or without having been given the proper cancelling signal on the block. It's something you should never do. And the investigators said he must therefore bear the main responsibility for the collision. The book stopped with him. He was only a young man, 26 years old, who had only just joined the railway in July of 1960 and then received a six weeks course and was appointed as a signalman at Singleton Station in October of 1960. And while Harrison holds the blame, Whiteside doesn't escape untarnished. Langley goes on to tell us that signalman Whiteside's actions also call for criticism. I have no doubt that when he heard Inspector Bush say that he was leaving Singleton Bank with a ballast train and when he was offered the Colne Express a few minutes later, he assumed, quite wrongly, that the ballast train must have passed Singleton Station by then. In spite of his denials, I am sure that his anxiety to give the Express a clear run, Whiteside pressed Harrison unduly and suggested to him that he must have forgotten the ballast train. Whether he actually offered Harrison the express with a block instrument still at train online is a matter of doubt. It is possible that his impatience caused him to bell Harrison more than once, and that those signals were taken as a request for line clear. In any event, it was quite wrong of Whiteside to press a young signalman in the way that I am sure he did. In fact, the only person that was fully exonerated in this section of the report was done so posthumously with us being told that driver T-Shaw was in no way responsible for the collision, and his prompt application reduced materially the speed of the express. A vindication Shaw would never be aware of. of the key comments that we can pull out of the Singleton report is this. The collision between the fast-moving passenger express and the stationary ballast train was primarily the result of a young signalman's failure to adhere to the regulations for train signalling on double lines by the absolute block system, the fundamental system of operation on British railways. And the last section of this episode has shown that we understand that link. But it's actually the line that follows next, which is pretty important. This failure was the culmination of a series of breaches of railway rules and regulations, some petty and some serious, which had occurred during a period of ten and a half hours. Yes, Harrison didn't follow the rules, and this directly led to the crash. But actually, rules had been bent and broken over the course of this entire piece of work. Redmond had been responsible for handing over the lines to the engineers and ensuring proper protection in the operation of trains within the blockade area, and things kind of started out how they were going to continue. 
He carried out the spirit, but not the letter, of the instructions for taking possession of the up and down lines between Wheaton and Singleton, and immediately allowed a freight to pass over the normally blocked down line. An hour later, he allowed a light engine to be sent through to Singleton Station, coupled to a ballast train which then remained in the section. Both of these movements were safely carried out, but the method of signalling adopted was highly irregular. It involved authorising with the block instrument the movement of the ballast train on a line that was handed over to engineers, the wrongful description of the train as a light engine, the clearance of the block instrument when the light engine alone arrived at Singleton, having left the ballast train still working in the section. As the report echoes, it's not surprising that other block irregularities occurred when such a, such a series of misuse of block instruments was authorised by a senior inspector. And it's not the only thing that was being done wrong. Despite the fact that trains were running on the wrong line at times, neither of the signals issued orders to cover these, and inspectors didn't pay any attention to this. And where single line working was instigated on the down, no hand signalman was available for cautioning trains at the Wheaton distance. Instead, Redmond ensured safety by instructing the signalman not to accept trains from Kirkham unless the pilotman was present to travel with the train. Granted, this was a safe method of work, in practice, but it wasn't in accordance with Rule 200, which lays down that even in those circumstances, a hand signalman should be provided. One of the issues most problematic here, though, was the numerous telephone conversations that took place on the omnibus circuit, which served all the stations and all the signal boxes between Kirkham and Poulton. These conversations were necessary so that information about the progress of work could be given to Redmond and so that he and Assistant Inspector Bush could give the required instructions and advice to signalmen and, well, everyone else who was concerned with the night's operations. But investigators offered no objection to this procedure. In fact, it was probably essential if engineering work and operating arrangements were to be carried out effectively. But there is a but, and it's a big but. Telephone conversations are liable to be misconstrued unless they are clearly stated. And on an omnibus line, with so many people listening in or not listening in, misunderstandings are even more likely to occur. Signalmen and others were in a habit of listening to telephone conversations, even if the code call wasn't for them. So, it was assumed by Redford that all the interested signalmen were listening in when he was giving instructions regarding the withdrawal of single-line working and the movement of trains and engineering machines. Misunderstandings in such circumstances are inevitable, especially when messages aren't being read back or confirmed by those they're intended for. Above everything else, there is one rule that likely would have changed everything, had it been obeyed. Rule 216. As defined in the British Rails Rules Book of 1950, 216 applied to the protection of ballast trains, and barring a few sections where I've trimmed out references, etc., it tells us that when it is necessary for a ballast train to remain stationary on the line or to move so slowly as to be in danger of being overtaken, the guard must arrange for the hand signalman to protect the train. This hand signalman must station himself two miles or such further distance as may be necessary in the rear of the ballast train. To ensure that the driver of an approaching train having a good and distant view of his hand signal, he must also place three rail detonators 10 yards apart and exhibit a hand danger signal. The hand signalman must continue to protect the ballast train until he is recalled by the driver sounding his whistle, or until he receives an order from the guard to withdraw the hand signal. When the hand signalman is not at a signal box and is recalled, he must leave three detonators on the rail and the guard must arrange with the persons appointed by the engineer to remove the detonators when the train has proceeded on its journey. Rule 216 was not applied here at Singleton, and it's clear to see that had it been done, then the outcome could well have been different. In the time that Shaw had to stop his train, he managed to bring it down from 60 to 45 miles an hour. With an extra quarter of a mile, half a mile's notice, that speed could have been significantly reduced, and indeed the collision could have, well, in all probability, been avoided. It's an exercise in what-ifs, however, as Redmond didn't arrange for this protection to take place. In his opinion, single-line working was still in force between Wheaton and Singleton, although as we know, the single-line working had been withdrawn from Wheaton, and the train register there had been endorsed by the pilotman to that effect. 
The object of 216 is to provide protection for a ballast train when it's sat there on the line. And circumstances can arise if its presence is overlooked by the signalman controlling the block, or from a misunderstanding regarding its location. Circumstances which really very clearly arose on this occasion. The last comments relating to this rule being applied within the report are that Inspectors Wilkinson and Bush supported Redmond's reading of the rules, and Langley didn't really dispute this. He he understood that that opinion was held in some other districts. His personal opinion is that he did not accept that opinion. He considered that Rule 216 should have been applied on this occasion. In view, however, of such differences of opinion around its application, he didn't feel that Redmond could really be blamed for failing to enforce it, especially seeing as this understanding was shared by other people in other areas of British rail. The strongest words in the report do, of course, though, relate to the misuse of the block instruments, which allowed the passenger train to be signalled into the ballast train. Misuse of block instruments is a dangerous practice which must not be allowed. We have rules on the railway for very, very good reasons. And this is a prime example of why their respect is an incredibly important factor in preventing disaster. At the end of his report, Langley passes on his remarks and recommendations. It's a common feature of reports of this time, and the first remarks made was actually, well, to issue a compliment. The impact at Singleton was somewhat dissipated by the fact it took place on a curve, but this didn't remove all of the force of the collision it couldn't have done, but the newer rolling stock involved did perform very well. With the exception of the front end of the leading vehicle, The damage to the bodywork was comparatively slight, and you can't really hold it against the front end. It took the brunt of the accident. But the fact that two of the coaches maintained enough strength to form a de facto bridge over the accident site, this crashworthiness was due in great measure to the integral all-welded steel construction, which had become the standard for this new era of multiple unit passenger stock. And it was a far cry from timber panels on timber or steel frames that we'd seen on trains of the past. There was also a comment uttered in praise of the couplers on the passenger train, because all but one of them remained connected throughout the accident. The first actual recommendation, however, that addresses the issues that were seen in communication on the worksite that morning. Langley recommended that the system of giving messages and instructions by telephone be reviewed, and that more comprehensive instructions be issued. He suggested that this might take the form of a code of practice, giving clear advice to supervisors, signalmen and others regarding the importance of ensuring that verbal messages, either directly or by telephone, are properly understood and setting out the occasions on which they should be repeated by the recipient. Well, if we take a look at this in terms of what exists today, it's clear that this was a very good suggestion and we can find a vast development of these principles in RIS 8046 TOM. That is a very catchily named railway standard document, which you know that I love to talk about. This one is called Spoken Safety Critical Communications. The document outlines how effective safety critical comms should be undertaken, breaking them down into four sections. And we've talked about the phrase safety critical before. These are aspects of the railway which directly relate to safety. So driving, conducting things like that. And this principle of splitting it into four sections works really, really well. So we'll start by having a quick look at them. The first section is the opening, and that's where you ensure that you're speaking to the right person and make sure that they know who you are. Hello, signaller. This is the driver of 1PAPA35. Can I confirm you're the signaller responsible for Huddersfield Station? So on and so forth. This phrase has a clear purpose. It ensures that the right people are talking to the right people. Following the opening communication, well, that should move into the information phase. 
they address the situation, where the train is, what it's doing, where it needs to go next. Thank you for the confirmation signaller. I'm sat at Wholesale Uniform 67 signal at red and I can see the next one down the line is green with no obstruction visible. This phrase that allows both participants to develop a clear understanding of what the situation is. The information can be passed aside from one to the other. And from the information phase, these communications move on to actions. That's the phrase, the phase, where instructions are passed between participants on the call. Okay, driver, I can see that there's no issue on the line and it appears as though it's a fault with the signal. Proceed at caution past Hotel Uniform 67 at Danger, travelling at a safe speed, examining the line and call me back once you've arrived in the platform, please, driver. This phase shows nice, clear instructions, easy to understand, unambiguous, and it is backed up by the final phase of an effective, spoken, safety critical communication. Confirmation. This one is key, and it's one of the reasons this works so well. Thank you, Signaler. I'll proceed past Hotel Uniform 67 at Danger, proceeding at caution and examining the line at a safe speed. Once I've arrived in the platform, I'll contact you again. It's the key phase, that last one that shows that both parties are agreed on the instructions. They've been given correctly and understood correctly. And that's a very basic example. And the syntax on a lot of it's probably wrong. <laughs> I've never been a signaler. I've never been a driver. But I hope it illustrates the principles behind it. And had such a principle or even a basic pared down version of that where someone checked that they'd heard it correctly, being in place at Singleton, we probably wouldn't have an episode this week. The other recommendations related to the fact that many of the rules and regulations in place are comprehensive but complicated. And complexity in rules can give rise to opportunities for ambiguity, or at least misunderstanding. Langley discussed the problem with the officers of the British Transport Commission, and they agreed to review these rules and regulations to see whether they could be simplified. Langley acknowledged that this would be by no means an easy task. But the aim should be to set out in clear and simple language those rules which must be obeyed implicitly, and to provide a comprehensive series of instructions and codes of practice, covering the various abnormal and unusual contingencies that can arise. And again, to look at what exists today in the form of the modular railway rulebook, you can see that this principle was certainly adopted over the six decades since the file played host to this accident. Each person on the railway who needs to undertake safety critical duties receives a rulebook folder. Within it, they're given the modules that they need. For example, if you're a signaller, you would receive TS9, Level Crosslings, Signaller Regulations. But if you're a driver, you'd get TW8, Level Crossings, Drivers Regulations. These modules are easily swapped out if things are updated, and they allow for the prevention of information blindness because well, staff are only issued with the modules that are relevant to their roles. And there's a whole matrix that tells you exactly which modules you need based on what your job is. Clear, unambiguous language is used throughout the documents and conventions are carried throughout the entire suite, such as um, the use of a black line in the margin when a rule has been published for the very first time. Green text in the margin that denotes who holds the responsibility for the task that's being referred to or the use of a red box to enclose information which is critical and needs to be emphasised in that way. This is the type of clear and concise information which I imagine Brigadier Langley could only have dreamed of, and which might have changed many, many dark days on the railway if it was only a feature many years sooner. brings us to the wrapping up section of today's story. One thing I can certainly say is that there are various factors which can make these episodes more or less easy to write. And in the case of last week's often nervous episode, it was some of the grim details that made that one challenging. 
other words, it's been the sheer complexity of the matter which brought either the length of the episodes or my own personal brain power, or lack thereof, into question. But actually, with this one, it was the lack of other sources that made it difficult. Accident reports are quite challenging documents to read, especially the further back you go. And sometimes other people's contemporary accounts are a really good factor in making them easier to pick up and write about. Singleton? There's not much of that. I mean, the prime example of how limiting that is would be to look at the Wikipedia page. I mean, at least it has its own entry, but that is not a lengthy page with not a lot of information. I do sometimes worry about the ability to fill a full episode when the material is a little bit lacking or where I'm struggling to get my head around it. And occasionally, like this episode, that makes the writing progress a little bit slow and the extra push to flesh out the episode time and give you a decent listening experience adds a bit more writing time and pushes back the recording, which means that uh, for an episode that was supposed to go out at six o'clock this morning, the fact that I'm finishing the recording at 17 minutes past eight in the evening, there's your explanation. That's my excuse for the delay. No delay repair forms, no no money back, I'm afraid. But uh, we're, you know, we're here now, eventually. Just keeping up with the spirit of the UK railway network at the moment, I guess. In any case, moving into my final thoughts about this actual accident is that, as ever, this was an accident that didn't need to happen. And it's a cliche, but it's true. At the start of work at midnight, when gangers and inspectors were descending onto the line between Wheaton and Singleton, everything was in place to prevent it. Every member of staff on site was trained up in their jobs. Everyone was qualified. The rules and the procedures surrounding the planned work were correct, and while they were complex, they should have prevented a disaster. The equipment on site, the signals, the comms, that was all functioning as designed. Nothing was wrong. There was no broken rail, no stretched signal cable, no drunk member of staff or a faulty brake block. Everything that was required to be in place to prevent this accident was there, except the will of those present to follow best practice and procedures. Whether it's time-saving, cost-cutting or bloody-minded laziness, I always find it stomach-churning to see that accidents have been caused by people who set out to not follow process, or to bypass safety measures. It likely happened all the time back in 1961, and I'd wager it probably still happens sometimes today without incident. A job is a little easier, it's finished a bit quicker, and nobody is any the wiser because nothing went wrong. But sometimes it's not okay. Sometimes things do not go right. And on the 16th of July, 1961, shortcuts and workarounds led to the untimely death of seven people just miles away from their destination. And there are three words which always spring to mind for me at times like these. And you know what? They're just as applicable today as ever. What a waste. Thank you for joining us for yet another episode of Signals to Danger. Feel free to like, share and interact on social media, Twitter, Facebook, just search for Signals to Danger or Daniel Fox Rail. Don't forget, we've now got merchandise on sale, the links on our socials, and if you want to support us, look for us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash signals to danger. Until next time, travel safe.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.